blood of your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is our victory. Now, God, we pray for your anointing upon the preaching of your word, upon the hearing of your word, and upon the doing of your word. Bless us now. Continue to enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth. For it's in the marvelous name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn with me once again to the gospel according to St. Luke, beginning with verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger, on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. Verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. I want to preach today with the help of the Holy Spirit, and I do solicit your prayers from this subject, a story of God's amazing grace. A story of God's amazing grace. The Bible is complete in its collection of stories pertaining to the amazing grace of God. From Genesis to Revelations, we find stories about the grace of God. We find a gracious God delivering his people out of Egyptian bondage. We find the grace of God with the people as they marched around the walls of Jericho. We find the grace of God in the life of the Samaritan woman who had lived a sinful, immoral life, but yet Jesus Christ reached out to her. We find the grace of God in the story of the woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery. We find the grace of God if Jesus fed the multitude. We find the grace of God if Jesus healed people through and through the Bible. We find amazing stories of the amazing grace of God. The grace of God is so amazing to us uh, because it is something that we have not earned. And, and we do not deserve it. And so in today's text, Jesus tells a parable or uh, a story about a young man who became full of himself. This young man disrespected his father and requested his share of the inheritance. And he turned his back on his father and he left for the Bible called what Bible calls a far country. Now, let us examine five aspects of this story in order to gain a better understanding of God's grace as it relates to fallen humanity. When we look at this story, first we see the departure. The departure. Verses 11 through 13 reveals the younger son asking his father to give him the portion of the estate that, would he, that he would inherit upon his father's death. The son thought that he could be happier away from home. This willful and selfish request pained the father's heart greatly. Nevertheless, the father let him go, for he had he forced him to stay, his home would have become more of a prison instead of a home. So with great sadness of heart, this father divided his estate, the Bible says, between his two sons. Now, with the financial transaction complete, the younger son took his inheritance and he headed out for a far 
country. Human nature has a way of, of rebelling against the word of God. Our flesh has a way of rebelling against the, the will of God and against the ways of God. So at times, people turn their backs on God and strike out on their own. Such was the case with this young man. He wanted nothing to do with his father's rules, regulations, and guidelines. He, like many in the world today, wanted to live on his home, on his own, away from God. But not only do we see the departure in the text, we see the destination. Verse 13 tells us he journeyed to a far country. The young son left his father's house under the misguided notion that living far away from his father's home would make him happy because he would no longer have any parental restraints, no rules, no regulations, no restrictions, no guidelines. Amen. But the sad reality is that this young man brought into the devil's lie, hook, line, and sinker. He was duped by the master of deception into believing that a sinful lifestyle, sinful practices, sinful behavior produce, would produce unconsequential pleasure. Let me say that again. He was fooled by Satan into thinking that his sinful behavior, his sinful practices, his sinful lifestyle would produce unconsequential pleasure. Now, to be sure, sin does produce pleasure. Am I right about it? Certainly, sin generates satisfaction. Realistically, sin engenders gratification, but it does so always at an extremely high price. As it has been stated, sin takes us further than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and sin always costs us more than we want to pay. And as Satan led Adam and Eve to doubt God's good purpose by asking, has God said? So the younger son doubted his father and moved outside the father's will for his life. Yes, now notice, Jesus did not name a specific place as the far country. Neither did he designate the distance of the far country in terms of miles, how many miles it was away from his father's house. The reason is clear. The far country is not about a specific town, city, or country, or travel distance to get there. The far country is used as a metaphor for any place that is outside the will of God. And that means it's in our best interest not to go there. The safest place, according to the Mississippi Mass Choir, is in the will of God. They, they say the safest place in the whole wide world is in the will of God. That will might displease people, but it's the safest place to be. That will might not always be comfortable, but it is the safest place to be. The will of God might not always be the most popular place. It might not always be the place where we want to be, where we desire to be, or even where people think we ought to be, but it's always the safest place. 
And third, we see the destitution. Look at verses 14 and 15. But when he had spent all, that meant when he had when he when all his liquid assets were gone, when his funds were depleted, when his bank statement read insufficient funds, when he had spent all, that means when he was done balling and shot calling, when he had spent all, that means when he when he had stopped living large, when he had stopped opening the doors of the club and closing the cl doors of the club and buying drinks for everybody, when he had spent all, the Bible says there arose a severe famine in the land. He began to be in want. To be in want meant not only that the basic necessities of life, to be in want rather means not only uh, not having the basic necessities of life, which he did not have, but to be in want meant that his freedom and his happiness were now gone. In other words, that penthouse he was leasing is gone. The luxury ride he rolled through town in, is gone. The fancy clothes he wore and received compliments about how good he looked and how sharp he was, all, all gone. The gold and the glitter, gone. The groupies, gone. The ladies who followed him from party to party, gone. The lights on his parade had been turned out and it had begun to rain profusely. So here he is now facing a destitute situation. As this story further unfolds, Jesus paints a vivid picture of what destitution looks like. Notice verse 15 where Jesus says, Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Verse 16, And we'd have gladly, he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs ate or the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. You see, destitution, misery, hardship, impoverishment was not what this young man had in mind when he left home, but it's what he got when he got out there. Footnote, those of us who have trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross and have been placed in the family of God by the power of the cleansing blood of Jesus have got it made. I don't know if you realize it or not, but if you are a Christian today, you got it made. For the world, things have gotten as good as they're going to get. It's all downhill from here. But for the Christian, the best is yet to come. So I want to let you know this morning that if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, in spite of what you read on the news, in spite of the news, in spite of what you see on television, in spite of what people tell you as a Christian in Jesus Christ, you've got it made. We've got it made because in our father's family, in our father's kingdom, in our father's domain, we have everything that we need. Everything that we need, we have through our, through our God. No destitution here. No impoverishment here. No misery here. Because God supplies, the Bible says, all of our need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
David stated the matter in like fashion in Psalm 23 when he wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. David said, I shall not want. What David is saying is that whatever I need, God will provide. David said, my life lacks nothing because God is my source. David said, my life lacks nothing because God is my substance. My life lacks nothing because God is my supplier. In other words, if you belong to the family of God, don't think for one moment that you will be out that, that, that you will be able to outdistance God's sources, God's substance, and God's supplies. God never runs out. God never runs out. And, and, and you know, the good thing about it, notice what David said uh, in th- Psalm 37 and 25. David said, I once was young, but now I'm old. He, he says, he says, now I'm an old man. He says, I'm a seasoned saint. I'm a time-tested veteran. And, and concerned of the inexhaustible substance of God, I want to tell you something. I'm young. I've been young, but now I'm old. But one thing I've never seen, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. David says, God's supply will never run out. Unlike governments that run out of supplies, unlike the military that run out of supplies, unlike people who run out of supplies, God never runs out. Notice David's words concerning the goodness of God. He didn't say, I'm telling you what I think. He didn't say, I'm telling you what I feel. He didn't say, I'm telling you what somebody else told me that they had seen. David testified, I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. I've never seen anybody destitute who placed their trust in God. So forth we see in the text resolution. This young man, this young son made up his mind. He, He resolved in his mind. After having been in the far country, he resolved in his mind. That the safest place to be, the best place to be, the most productive place to be was for him to get back to his father's house as quick as he could. Verse 17 says, but when he came to himself, that means when he came to his senses, that's an idiom or a phrase that indicates repentance or a change of direction. So it was the young man had a change of mind. This young man had a change of attitude. This young man decided to make a change in his behavior. Is there anybody here who remembers when you came to yourself? Is there anybody here this morning who remembers that, remembers when you had a change of mind? Is there anybody here who can remember when God changed your attitude concerning your state of being and how you were living? That was a great day, wasn't it? That was the day you said something is wrong with this picture. 
That was the day you said there must be something more to life than what I'm experiencing. I'm tired of living like this. I know God intended me to do better than what I'm doing. I'm tired of, of living life the world's way. I've been trying to do it the world's way and trying to do it my way, but the world's way is not working and my way is not working, so I'm going to God. If there's anybody here that remembers when you gave it up and decided to go all the way with Jesus. So you said, here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you are my God. You forever worthy. So he said, I'll say, go to my father and say, I'm, I'm coming home. If there's anybody here who can say it, Remember the day you said to God, I'm sick and tired of the drama and the trauma. So here I am, God. Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. Whatever you can make out of this broken life, whatever you can make out of this broken heart, whatever you can make out of these shattered dreams, whatever you can make out of this mess that I made, I'm here, I'm yours. If you've ever been there, you can identify with this young man who came to himself and who said in verse 17, how many of my father's highest service have bread enough to spare and I perish from hunger. What he's saying is my father's service, my father's slaves are living better than I am. They're eating good and here I am starving. Verse 18, he said, I will arise and go to my father. And I like this because he didn't say I'll go to my father and blame my father. He didn't say I'll go to my father and make excuses. He didn't say I'll go to my father and I'll tell him off. No, he said I'll go to my father and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. That's his humble confession. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Father, I don't deserve anything. Father, you were good to me. Father, I've squandered your wealth. Father, you blessed me. I turned my back on you. Father, you've been good. So here I am, no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants and I'll be satisfied. See, this young man didn't have an entitlement mentality that, that God owed him a good life and that, that the father owed him all the, all, the, all the property that he had. No, he was humble in his approach. And that's the way we ought to approach God. We ought to come to God humble with our humble confession. God, I've blown it. God, I messed up. God, I'm not worthy. God, just make me. One of your service, I'll be satisfied. But fifth in the text, we see the reception. Notice verse 20. And he arose, that means he made good on his thoughts. He arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck what a reception in this reception we see the father's grace exemplified to exemplify means to demonstrate 
grace was exemplified in that the father didn't greet his son with, I told you so. He didn't say, Joker, had you listened to me, you would not have wasted all your money. Had you listened to me, you would not have ruined your life. Had you listened to me, you would not be in the mess that you're in. Had you listened to me, you would have been much better off. He didn't say that. No. Look at Grace exemplified. He he, he he ran to meet his son. Look at Grace exemplified. He kissed him. Look at Grace exemplified. Then he said in verse 22 to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. The robe symbolized royalty. So, so Grace exemplified. This Grace exemplified was a statement to everyone on behalf of the father that said no matter where he's been, that's grace exemplified. Yeah. No matter what he's done, yeah. no matter who he's done it with, he's home now and he's mine. That's God's grace exemplified. Yeah. The relevance in verse 22 is this. When you mess up, people may put you out. People may disown you. People may wash their hands of you. People may stay clear, steer clear of you. People may want, even family members may want nothing to do with you. Some people may not even speak to you and tell you, I never want to see you again or speak to you again. But God's amazing grace exemplified says if he has to reach way down, down into the far country, down into the pig pen of life, down into the dirt, down into the danger, down into the depression, down into the disillusionment, down into the discouragement. If he has to reach way down and pick you up, he'll do it. That's God's grace exemplified. Aren't you glad today for grace exemplified? Because some of us were wear down, and yet God didn't pass over us. He reached wear down and picked us up. But wait a minute. Not only did the son get a role for which was grace exemplified, he got a ring. That's grace magnified. The ring was a symbol which said, not only is this my son, but he has the power to speak on my behalf, act on my behalf, and utilize my resources. When they put that ring on the young man's finger, in spite of his past behavior, in spite of the alienation, the aggravation, and the frustration he caused his father, that was grace magnified amplified, enlarged, expanded, blown up where everybody could see what the Father had done. Is there anybody here today can testify the grace of God magnified in your life? Is there anybody here who can testify to having God's grace blown up full measure in your life to the point where you and everybody around you know that you are where you are today because of God's amazing grace. Maybe you were in a bad relationship and God delivered you. Maybe you were locked up and locked out but God delivered you. Maybe you were sick and not expected to, 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 to live but God's grace brought you through. 
But not only was the Father's grace exemplified and magnified, the Father's grace was also clarified. To clarify means to make clear, to spell out, to illuminate, to shed light on a matter. Notice grace clarified in verse 22 and put a ring on his finger and now get this, and sandals on his feet. In those days, slaves did not wear sandals. The wearing of sandals were reserved for full-fledged family members. The fathers unquestionably clarified the son's sonship, unquestionably clarified the son's position in the family when he had sandals placed on his feet. Now, no one had the authority or the right to question the son's relation to his father or his position in his father's family. So it is with those of us who have trusted in the finished work on Calvary's cross, those of us who receive Christ by faith, God's amazing grace clarifies our position in God's family as God's children, and nobody can change that. But wait a minute, there's one more component. Not only was the Father's grace exemplified and magnified and clarified, we see that grace was also glorified. To glorify means to exalt us, to praise. Now look at verses 23 and 24 where the Father said, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. He said, let's eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead. Now it's alive again. He was lost. And found. And they began to be merry. They began to have a celebration, a a time of commemoration, a time of praise, a time of of celebration because of the Father's grace. Uh, Certainly, this story is about a lost son returning home, but it's more about the loving Father who welcomed him home. Certainly, this story is about a boy going wrong, turning around, and getting it right. But it's more about a gracious father who greeted his son with open arms. So here's the practical application. When our father has blessed us, when our father has kept us, when our father has made a way out of no way, when he has brought us out, got us over and taken us through, when he has lifted us up, picked us up, moved us up, when God has rescued us and healed us and mended our broken hearts, when God has regulated regulated our troubled minds, we ought to glorify his name. We ought to exalt his name. We ought to praise his name. and We ought to celebrate his name. We ought to party in his name. We ought to dance in his name. We ought to shout in his name. We ought to come to the communion table in his name and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, because you sure have been good to me. And I love the hymn writer who wrote Amazing Grace. Ah, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Thank God. For him, amazing grace.